Welcome to PwC's The Global Realities of Cybersecurity podcast series. I'm your host, Joe Nocera, PwC's Cyber and Privacy Innovation Institute leader. And in this episode of the series, we'll be inviting along some of our colleagues who are experts in their fields to discuss some of the relevant topics around cybersecurity and the workforce. Today's conversation is centered around the new normal. In the workplace, what that means for both employers and employees. How do we keep employees productive and how can we keep their new work environments secure? Today, I'm joined by two of my colleagues for this discussion, Emily Staff and Bushan Sethi. Thank you very much for joining me today. And please take a minute for each of you to introduce yourselves. Hi, Joe, and hi, listeners. I'm Emily Staff. I'm a cybersecurity, privacy, and forensics partner with PwC. Been with the team for almost 20 years, and I'm based here in Denver. Hi, Joe and Emily. Delighted to be here. I co-lead our global people and organization practice, and I'm based in New York. All right. Well, thank you very much. Bushan, let's start the first question uh, for you. And as a workforce professional, I know you've talked with many clients and helped them with their strategies, uh, particularly in adapting to this new normal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing and what do employees need so that they feel confident and supported in this new environment? Yeah, it's, thanks, Joe. It's really interesting. It seems to change every every other week right now. Right now, when I think about kind of from a U.S. point of view, um, as states are reopening and people are thinking about how do I return to a physical workplace, our clients are really focused and, our, and the employees of our clients are really focused on the safety aspect. So in our latest CFO survey, over 70% of CFOs said that as they think about return to the workplace, they are leading with safety. And that's all aspects of of tracing, testing, access to PPE, thinking about flexible schedules. What's really interesting is when we ask consumers how confident they're feeling about returning to workplace, only 50% are actually feeling that those safety measures are actually improving their confidence. So the real lesson learned there is uh, for a lot of our clients, the return to the workplace is going to be slow, sure and risk adjusted. But also the messages to employees that are focused around safety really needs to be personalized, as does that return to workplace strategy. Said differently, our firms, our clients are looking at the different worker profiles, the different uh, constraints they have and concerns about returning to a physical workplace and actually personalizing their strategies. And it's also, and I know we'll talk about this later, it's also a reason why a number of our clients where they can, they're saying to people, work remote, whether it's on a permanent basis or a semi-permanent basis for the foreseeable future. Well, Bashan, that's a great transition maybe to Emily. Uh, Emily, as you think about uh, companies having to balance those different work modes, remote work, uh, on-site work, some semi-permanent remote work, that's quite a bit of complexity, particularly from a cybersecurity perspective. So what are the challenges that you're seeing as a result? Thanks, Joe, and thanks, Bushan. The need to support numerous work modes simultaneously is definitely causing additional complexity. Initially, it was a race to support everyone working remotely. We saw our clients respond to this with varied degrees of success, but the mission was clear and mainly one directional, support people working remotely as fast as possible and try not to sacrifice security controls. Well, here we are 15 weeks into the pandemic and our clients have mostly figured out the remote work pathways. Now, as companies shift into this new phase of normalcy, there's a combination of work modes, including remote, in-office and hybrid schedules, some days on, some days off, A weeks, B weeks, as well as suppliers coming back online with new infrastructure. 
CISOs need to support simultaneous work modes with unpredictable schedule changes and major technology cutovers with limited ability to validate the user experience. The job just got a lot more complicated. So first, for those who had not previously invested heavily in cloud technologies, remote access and seamless identity management, with semi-permanent and permanent remote workers, many of these investments and system changes will now need to be made on the fly to cut over from temporary to permanent solutions, and the additional networking technology controls and scalability required will undoubtedly cause headaches as those fixes become permanent. Second, we need to seamlessly transition between the same people working remotely and in office on a daily basis with no expectation of downtime or transition and even scheduling to know who to expect on the network when. CISOs have to be prepared for every combination of stress on the network load while defending against unwanted actors, all while not being able to walk down the hall and validate the user experience. Third and most concerning for me personally as a incident response practitioner is the continued vigilance needed by both end users and security teams to decipher expected from nefarious access. Phishing attacks are higher than ever, and with employees adapting to remote technologies, instructions and screens that might be unfamiliar in normal circumstances, users will be even more prone to give up their credentials accidentally and start the waterfall of a breach. Thanks, Emily. You know, we've also heard about companies that are considering remote work as a permanent arrangement. When I think about the steps that maybe a CISO needs to take to enable workers to switch seamlessly between their home and office, uh, their coworkers, how do they think about uh, keeping that, that environment secure? There are two facets to this strategy, training and technical safeguards. On training, as ever before, employees are your organization's first line of defense, period. Companies can protect themselves by encouraging personnel to be skeptical of email from unfamiliar sources and to be thoughtful about bypassing process controls just because the workforce isn't face-to-face. -face. For example, just because the approving finance person isn't sitting in their physical office doesn't mean approval for a change to payment instructions is no longer required. Maybe now it's just a telephone callback instead of a walk down the hall. So don't let up on training at this time. Lean in, especially with your return to work committees and use the people focused on the impact and stresses that COVID has placed on your workers. Enlist their help in making uh, cybersecurity training and awareness core to the return to work plans. And I'm sure Bouchon has seen a lot of this already. So on the technical safeguards bit, I'll take you through five things. First, it's simulation exercises and planning. Plan your response to a phishing attack or a ransomware outage proactively before you need to. Incorporate lessons learned from previous simulations to close gaps in your response plan. Assign responsibilities and decision points for incident response, including escalations, handoffs, internal and external communications, and who has the authority to make changes to remote access controls now that we're all leaning on invisible pathways to do our job. These are the same pathways that threat actors might exploit. Second, it's strengthen your perimeter and enhance your remote access management policies and procedures in addition to technology. So use security solutions to identify and deflect threats before attackers can penetrate your systems. Incorporate tested and proven detection monitoring controls and limit access to sensitive data as much as possible. 
If you've not already done so, implement multi-factor authentication for VPN access, IP whitelisting, limits on RDP access, and added scrutiny of remote network connections. Third, it's fortify your endpoint protection and address your vulnerability backlog. So what does this mean? Protect your devices against malware, we all know that. But test your security software to make sure it works and especially that it reaches the new four corners of your distributed working environment. And use it in your broader detection and monitoring program. Asset and vulnerability management is more important now than ever. Bat down that backlog. Fourth, it's about your portals. So secure your supplier portals and other externally facing applications using multi-factor and risk-based authentication, especially for applications that would allow a supplier or a criminal posing as a supplier to make any changes that could impact accounts or financial payments. Review account usage on these portals, purge those ghost and inactive accounts, and rotate those portal passwords. And then finally, it's about broadening your view of threats and risks during crisis by teaming up with fraud prevention and enterprise risk functions. So work with financial controls, fraud and customer identity teams to improve detection and monitoring and accelerate responses. For example, and tying this back to the training point, strengthen financial and treasury controls to require callbacks for emailed payment and change requests. So Bashan, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the shift from temporary to semi-permanent remote working arrangements. How do firms need to worry about the impact of this on the employee user experience? Yeah, so when you think about the semi-permanent, and what we mean by that is we don't believe remote work in its current form. You know, in our last CFO survey, 54% of the CFOs said they're looking to make remote work permanent. I think if we looked at that data in two years' time, we'll probably see um, a number will go to semi-permanent, so flexible, uh, and a smaller number than 54% will actually go to permanent. So said differently, our, our the employees of our clients and even us at PwC will get used to semi-permanent flexible work. It may be three days on, it may be two days um, from a different location. What that means is there's there's a need for users to who are using different systems, different user experience systems um, in the physical workplace or outside to really understand that there is the same level of standards around protecting the firm, protecting the assets, protecting the customers from a cyber perspective. The other point I'd like to pick up on, and, and Emily mentioned customers, no longer is this about the workforce and training up the workforce, doubling down on the client communications, whether it be a lot of your banking clients who are trading in-person visits to conducting their transactions on a mobile app or other customers who are dealing with you via digital channels, they are much more vulnerable to some of this. So making sure your workforce and your customers are also communicated as well as the other stakeholders is a critical component in protecting everybody's assets and data and protecting customers at this time. In our recent Digital Trust Insights Pulse Survey, CISO saw attacks soar since February of 2020, and they expect these threats to remain elevated over the next six months. So Emily, based on some conversations I know you've had with clients, which cyber investments have really paid off during the crisis, and what investments are they prioritizing for the future? Sure, thanks Joe. It's a great question and it's a really interesting answer. Uh, investments in the past two to three years that paid off the most during this crisis were not one-off security products and technologies 
process and governance investments have lent a steady hand in this uncertain time. So in our Digital Trust Insight Survey, as you mentioned, CISOs said they invested in eight different areas on average over the past two to three years. And there are three clear capabilities that paid off most during the crisis. The first two may seem obvious, but the third is an unsuspecting victor. So these investments, these are investments related to number one, remote work, number two, crisis management, and number three, data-driven risk management. So not surprisingly, with respect to remote work, investments such as VPN, VDI, mobile device management, endpoint security, and identity-based network architecture have really led the pack. The most effective investments were not those related purely to the implementation of specialty technologies, though, as I mentioned before, rather implementations paired with thoughtful strategies designed to enable a distributed workforce to completely mimic their in-office personas with a mind toward fewer and fewer on-premise assets, privacy-forward designs, automations, and privilege access management, and the governance roles and responsibilities um, to underpin all of that. Secondly, with respect to crisis management, perhaps not surprisingly, investments in resilience capabilities such as BCPDR, managed threat detection and incident response services, as well as tabletop exercise scenario planning and roles and responsibilities testing has proven invaluable lead-in exercises to what our clients have had to face in the past 15 weeks. Most companies scrambled to establish a crisis management team to lead the COVID response. Those with established incident response and crisis teams were absolutely a step ahead. And then third is that data-driven risk management, uh, unsuspecting victor, as I called it. So investments such as real-time threat intelligence, data analytics, security metrics, and quantification of cyber risk have proven extremely helpful to lean on as information evolved very quickly during the crisis and demands began to emerge for how to support the needs of the distributed workforce. It's never been more important to support workforce options with metrics and facts and not anecdote and guts. So as we think forward, it's become clear that the pandemic has induced CISOs to rethink their cyber strategy investment priorities. So I wanna tell you what our respondents said, their top three investments reported going forward. Number one, it's invest in better information governance for data-driven decision-making. Number two, it's integrating cyber risks with enterprise risk management, that notion of broadening out um, your risk lens to understand that cyber is just one of many enterprise risk. And number three, it's increased resilience to severe events by again, broadening the risk lens to operational as well as technical downtime, and not the least of which, again, you're gonna hear a theme between Bashan and myself, but the user experience. Maybe just to add that, Emily, when we think about the cyber professionals that we work with at our clients, they are a critical resource before COVID, even more so now. So when we think about all of the aspects of um, the experience on those employees, the burnout, managing their own employee experience and, and having leaders check in with them, having people cross-train others into cyber roles, um, accessing external talent where possible, just to really manage this critical resource. Because as you've said, our clients have, have really shown a lot of resilience around their protection of their security and their, their data and their, their customers' assets. 
but in the, it may not be sustainable without a more deliberate focus on how do we how do we upskill others? How do we manage the resource plans around the critical uh, site professionals we have? And how do we need to check in with them to make sure that they are managing their own well-being and taking vacation and developing others and all the other elements that we've talked about previously around the workforce strategy around that critical um, resource component? That's right. That's great. So, you know, maybe Bashan, uh, thinking through not only the pandemic, but some of the recent social unrest, we've seen a number of business leaders start to make an effort to really lead with more empathy. Uh, unfortunately, I know those actions haven't necessarily resonated with employees. Our recent uh, Workforce Pulse survey said only about one third of employees said that these actions were making them feel more confident in their ability to do their job. So I guess the question for you is how can leaders do a better job in communicating and taking action? So first of all, I think we need to acknowledge that communications and the connections to one's employer has been a strong point of kind of the pandemic response for a lot of our clients. People are feeling connected, whether it's about the transmission of the disease, whether it's about attitudes around how the firms are dealing with some of the challenges um, of the pandemic. And obviously the last three weeks here in the US and globally has shone a light on racial injustice. And there's really been a focus around leaders there. So our perspective is, continue that, but make sure it's much more personalized and backed up with actions. But you're right, only a third of our respondents actually said some of those messaging, some of that communication is really improving their confidence in returning to the workplace and making their jobs, um, making their ways of working more simpler. So leaders having to kind of continue that journey. And given the fact that we are talking about security and cyber and protecting a firm and their assets, really making sure that there's ongoing dialogue around the importance of cyber and the importance of not downloading tools that may have a nicer user experience if they're on your, um, you know, or working on a home device. It, it's so important right now, um, given the vulnerabilities, given the, the strain on infrastructure and systems, and given a, a lot of challenge around bad actors out there, um, whether they be, you know, state bad actors um, and others, that it's really important to kind of protect assets, protect users, protect information, um, as we're all realizing the internet is one of the most critical essential workers we have right now in this pandemic. That's great. So Emily, maybe talk a little bit about how the interactions have changed between the CISO, the rest of the C-suite, and even the board uh, in light of the pandemic. Absolutely. This has been a very tangible change and a, a sea change or a shift for, for our CISO community. And, and one that I think they're, uh, by and large, we're absolutely ready for, and it's going to be a door opener for, for future success as well. So uh, our experience has been that CISOs who've been pushing for cloud investments, data minimization, identity and access management strategies, asset reduction, and managed services sound pretty much clairvoyant right now. Boards who listened and availed investment dollars to enable these strategies are incredibly glad they did because the companies who are able to quickly pivot to remote infrastructure and a distributed workforce without disrupting operational capacity or information access were immediately ahead in the game in the early COVID days. This continues now too, because the management teams uh, are, who are best positioned to choose the future work mode options and supporting technologies that are most strategic for the company not just those that are minimally viable or locked in because of legacy uh, technology decisions. 
Second, where strong relationships and communication channels between cyber executives, executive management, and the board already existed, these companies were better positioned to pivot when COVID hit. We see in the survey numbers from, again, the Digital Trust Insights survey, that a 65% majority of CISOs have interacted more frequently with their CEOs, and 50% have interacted more frequently with their boards during this crisis an increase on both fronts. 30% of CISOs are reporting weekly CEO interaction and 20% are interacting with their boards on a monthly basis. This is an uptick. Um, Effective communications with the board and CISOs requires many leadership skills that will be invaluable in the coming months. The time is now for imaginative and influential CISOs to step up. It's very exciting. So boards and C-suite executives who in the past may have wondered about the return on investment for all the cybersecurity personnel, solutions, and architectures they funded, don't worry anymore. The value of their cybersecurity expenditures over the years and the CISO's leadership and rise in the executive ranks became crystal clear during the crisis. And the next generation is is here uh, for CISOs to become business enablers going forward. Awesome. That's great. So maybe uh, as we begin to wrap up, I could get some final thoughts from from each of you. Any any final thoughts you'd like to share? Sure. So one thing we've learned in this pandemic is those firms who did not go it alone have actually tried to address common problems like health outcomes, racial um, inequality, um, how to communicate key decisions, how to deal with Um, If you have to make layoffs, making employees available to other opportunities in sectors. So the whole point of addressing common challenges together has been one that we've seen work well in this pandemic. When I apply that to the cybersecurity topic, we know that a lot of policymakers, both in the US and globally, really care about this topic. So I'm actually part of a task force with with a a G20 group that's actually looking at a policy to say how do how do global and regional policymakers start addressing cybersecurity challenges for some of the most vulnerable populations? We educate our children online these days. We get our health information online. Um, a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa may be accessing microfinancing through an online app. Really protecting the information and the assets of some of our most vulnerable communities and populations in the US and globally is critical. A lot of the technology, a lot of technology platforms, a lot of businesses are coming together with policymakers and their consumers and users to say, how do we address this? Because this will be better for society as a a whole. So really thinking about the societal outcomes on what at first blush may look like a very technical internal issue. That's the big that's the big era. That's a good thing that I'm seeing that's coming out of this, both for cyber and addressing other aspects of the pandemic. And Joe, I'll share that, you know, personally, I've enjoyed being part of the cybersecurity evolution and call it revolution over the past 20 years. And in that time, I've really enjoyed seeing a couple of major tipping points that have changed the game for cybersecurity executives. So we've seen cybersecurity move strategically from being a back office IT function in the early 2000s to being a cross-functional business imperative from 2010 till now. The next decade will undoubtedly move the role further to the position of being a business enabler as the next generation CISO will have a mindset shift from value protector to value creator. 
The best CISOs will be key to unlocking customer trust, future modes of working, and catalyzing new business ventures by using cybersecurity as a commercial and competitive advantage. The CISO of 2020 and beyond will focus service delivery on innovation, productivity, and strategic alignment with the business. And that's the lemonade we're helping our clients make from this disruptor that is known as COVID. All right. Well, thank you, Emily and Bashan. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. I think it's been a, a great discussion. And just a quick reminder uh, for those in the audience, uh, please check out our previously recorded uh, episodes of the Global Realities of Cybersecurity. And please stay tuned for more details about our upcoming webcasts. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.